0: Hey, everybody, welcome to the pillar podcast. Hey, everybody. Yeah, how about that? That's kind of, hey, everybody, welcome to the pillar podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and pillar editor in chief JD Flynn. And I am joined by my podcasting partner, the great Ed Condon.
1: What doing JD? How you doing, man? How are you? It's Friday, and I've got
0: tickets to the baseball, and I'm feeling okay. Oh yeah, you are going to, you're going to, it is Friday, we're recording this podcast on Friday, September the 3rd, the 3rd of September, the Feast of St. Gregory the Great, and you have some great things happening today. You wrote a profile about a um a guy, a, a baseball guy, a pitcher named Trevor Williams, friend of the show, friend of the p- pillar, uh, probably a subscriber. Um, who, he says he is. Well, yeah. Now let me be clear. We didn't know that when we profiled him, obviously. No, um, no, no, no. <laughs> at any rate, you uh, you wrote a profile of the guy, and um, now you're going. He's going to play in the baseball game that you're going to tonight. The Washington Nationals against the New York Mets. Yep. You know, you wanna you wanna turn out and
1: and support good people where you can.
0: Well, and is the guy is the guy Trevor Williams who you profiled a couple weeks ago at the pillar? Is he um, is he on the mound, as it were? Uh,
1: I don't think he's down to start tonight, but he told me he's in the bullpen, so
0: hopefully we'll we'll get to see a few innings with him that's no mean the bullpen I mean, isn't that just mean everybody I mean every he's a starting pitcher, right? so I mean, is it common that I st- I don't know these things is it common that a starting pitcher would come off the off the bench as it were out of the bullpen to pitch a couple of innings, or isn't that what middle relievers are for or closers?
1: Or well, what? I mean, he was signed as a starting pitcher by the Cubs at the beginning of the season, but then he was dealt to the Mets in July, so he's been i think. Coming out of the bullpen for the Mets because they obviously had a starting rotation, okay, uh, already in place. So I, I think he's he's still shaking out where he fits in into their pitching order, and they're
0: they're using him as they see fit. And in in the hierarchy of baseball, there's no like, in the, in the hierarchy of pitchers, I guess there's no shame in being a reliever, right? I mean, like, um, oh heck no, that can st- you can still like I think Mariano Rivera, right? One of the greatest probably pitchers of all time was a closer, closer only, right? Absolutely. No, there's the you you
1: can be a a serious asset to the team out of the bullpen. It is, you know, the championships are won and lost on the strength of bullpens, JD. And uh you, you know, it's you need you need good pitching right the way through ninety innings. It's yeah, just well, that
0: simple. You know, as I always say, defense wins championships. That's something that I, I always say. I I always I find it um I don't
1: know what I would prefer to call offense or defense in baseball. I'm not sure which side of the, which side of the inning
0: I I think is correct. I mean, because you are. Well, you're playing defense when the other team has a possibility of scoring points. So well, the guys on the true, field with like the to... gloves in their hands, they're the ones playing defense. The guys with the bats. I know, but the I think Smith. of,
1: I agree, but I, I think of pitchers okay. as basically attacking the order. I mean, I, you know, it's, I, I find it hard to believe that throwing a, you know, 90 mile an hour slider is is a defensive move I, I i don't think of it that way but i mean you know anyway
0: well whatever. another thing that i always say i mean this is just i you know this is, i don't know if this is true or not but it's just something that i always say is that the best offense is a good defense so i don't know if that's something that i that's probably true although i also think that the best defense is a really that's good what offense. the phrase is isn't it that's the thing they say the best defense is a good offense isn't that what they say well yeah that's what some people right say. sure well i think it's something that they say right around the time they say de- defense wins championships and you know, if you want to win the game, you got to score more points than the other guys and can't, you know, you're not going to hold on to the ball if you can't stay ahead of the chains and other cliches that are essentially tautologies of how sports work.
1: Yes. Who are you going to the game with? Uh, I'm going to the game with a good buddy of mine and uh, and his son, who's also a uh, something of a pitching
0: phenom for his age group. So I'm I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Oh, that's great. Is he the age that he says he is, or does he have, like, a fake uh, Cuban birth or You know, like, remember those Little League World Series guys who turns out they were, like, 16 or whatever playing in the... the yeah, no, know, he's the... he's legitimately of the age of which he claims to be. He's not a student at Bishop Sycamore or anything like that. <laughs> that story, listeners, if you haven't heard about this story... Um, there Something happened in sports last Friday that, and this is not a sports podcast, blah, 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 but something happened in sports last Friday that I think is absolutely fascinating and worth just talking about. Because, so, you know, ESPN, the worldwide leader in sports, as they call themselves, the, uh, what I think, uh, you know, ESPN, I don't have to say anything more there. ESPN airs on Friday nights, it seems, uh, high school football games, Friday Night Lights, you know, and um, and usually like very, very good teams and usually kind of prep school teams of, you know, full of like great recruits for college and whatnot. Uh, You know, I don't think they're, they're just sort of um, airing, you know, the local parish high school or whatever. These are serious, uh, serious teams full of semi-professional 17 year olds playing football. And, um, uh, and so last weekend, on Friday, they aired a game um, between um, IMG Academy, which is this sort of sports prep academy industrial complex in Florida. Is that a fair way to describe it, Ed? I think so. I think that's fair. Yeah. So kids who are like, you know, top recruits, and I think a couple of sports, but kids who are you know really top recruits and and very very good, or maybe you know, um, go there and essentially train with like world class trainers and things like that in order to sort of advance their their prospects of a, of D one recruitment or going pro in their sport or whatever like that or whatever it is. So so that that team, IMG Academy, played on Friday night on ESPN, a team called uh, Bishop Sycamore. Uh, or Bishop Sycamore Academy and um, and IMG just wallop them. I mean just like just absolutely wallop them. but that's not the most interesting part uh, of what happened. Ed I'm gonna let you uh, what what happened? Well what turns it turns out that Bishop Sycamore doesn't
1: exist, um, that there is no such school anywhere in the country, um, that most of the players fielded by, the so-called Bishop Sycamore Academy uh, were grown men well outside of the band of what you might call high school age, or even, I guess, I think college age in a lot of places. I think most of the team, it turned out, were guys who had um, transitioned out for one reason or another of junior college football teams. Uh, the coach, I think, had a had a warrant outstanding somewhere? Uh, yeah, the something. coach had a
0: warrant. It, it, it turns out Bishop Sycamore exists in one sense. It well, uh, it, it's it's not clear, and in fact, the state of Ohio is investigating it because they say, well, we're a charter school, and um, yeah, they say we're a charter school chartered in the state of, of Ohio. The the Ohio Department of Education doesn't have a sort of clear record that that's a thing, and there's no clarity that there was ever even a person named Bishop Sycamore. At the same time, the state of Ohio hasn't yet been ready to say absolutely this school, which they say is an online-only charter school with football. Doesn't exist in part because it sounds like they're not a hundred percent sure that the, these people, that this sort of group of people didn't actually get a charter. But in one way or another, they're not teaching anything, and they're not they're not fielding a football team other than they played some games last year and then they played this game. But like you said, these people are people who are out of high school. Many of them, you know, I think over eighteen. Uh, who this was sort of like it was like they concocted their own last chance U or or last chance high, I suppose.
1: Yeah, I, that, that seems to be what it is. Is they,
0: I and mean, again, at least
1: as I understood the reports that I read, a lot of them had been through junior college football programs and things, and they they seem to have just basically said, "Well, let's create a fake high school and right. um, get on TV, and maybe somebody will recruit us." And I, I, I find the whole thing hilarious. I, the fact that they called it Bishop Sycamore, I <laughs> thought was yeah. brilliant because it's just such a perfect sort of identikit catholic high school name um and you know what what made the story even better was they got absolutely they didn't
0: score any points these like these these semi-professional losing record it's not like this was an aberration no that's exactly right they they yeah they they are not uh right exactly if you're going to create you know a fabricated last chance you the thing to do is to be good at it, you know, just to be good at the thing, the sport, football. Because even then it could be like, well, they were a fake school, but boy, did you see that tailback? And he's getting offers from Florida State or, you know, whatever. But it's just like, nope, they were outgunned, outmatched, and outmanned and and not real.
1: Yeah, it was a bunch of full-grown men who got their backsides handed to them by a bunch of high school kids. And it is hilarious.
0: Which for me, I I always sort of hold out the possibility like, okay, uh, if I practiced for six months, you know, I, I always hold up the possibility. I bet if I practiced for six months, I could probably walk on to a D1 school as a punter. This is just something I'm, I'm willing to believe about myself at any given time. So these adults getting walloped by high schoolers kind of discourages me from my own football dreams, I guess. Well, maybe. But
1: maybe you've just picked the wrong team in the wrong sport. I mean, I <laughs> through most of my youth, I was under the impression that thanks to, you know, films like Rookie of the Year, I was only ever one banana peel away from being called <laughs> up for the Cubs. And right. given how they're doing right now in the depth of their squad, I'd say I, I still have a reasonable chance of walking onto that team if they'd give me a look. So, you
0: know. <laughs> Now, one thing that I find really funny is there was a headline about Bishop Sycamore today. You know, So this is a fake school with fake players playing fake football. And there was a headline today saying that um, they stiffed the hotel where they stayed on the bill. And it's like, of course, of course, they did. <laughs> I'm outraged. I'm outraged, I'm outraged I, I to discover that this <laughs> that a bunch of fraudsters refused the to pay their, to their hotel. Bill. Rest, did not pay their. Bill. I cannot believe it. You know, I mean, here's just the, the thing. thing. I
1: hope that whoever is the the mastermind <laughs> behind the Bishop Sycamore ruse, mm-hmm. I hope he at least had the good sense to trademark
0: Bishop oh, yeah, Sycamore for sure,
1: because somebody's going to make money off those jerseys. I will. I would buy a Bishop Sycamore jersey. Or at I least know. a T-shirt.
0: I absolutely would, hundred percent. I would buy a Bishop Sycamore T-shirt. And it's entirely possible that someone. It, it is entirely possible. Our readers, um, our readers really like you, and, and our listeners to the show really like you, and so they send you stuff. And uh, <laughs> they so, have. I, I, if actually, if, can we pause there? Because I want to just say,
1: um, somehow an underground movement has developed where people have started sending me minor league baseball hats. And ordinarily, I get very hinky about people sending me things or acknowledging that i exist sort of but this this is just impossible for me to be anything other than incredibly flattered by so thank you um i yeah. really appreciate it
0: people I have send, a people growing... been sending
1: you hats people yeah. have been sending you cookies i, I gotta I, I have a hat um currently on the shelves of my office for the joliet slammers that is autographed by their starting pitcher that was sent to me by a priest of the diocese and you know what guys this is like this is the thing I won't say no to. Thank you. I, you know, just thank you.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. So anyway, people send you stuff. I also am on the show, but people send you stuff, and um, uh, I would not be surprised if an Ohio listener, because I have to imagine that there are Bishop Sycamore t-shirts like in on sale right now, like in gas stations and other places in in Ohio. And I would not be surprised if a listener deigns to send you one. I I, I would wear that. Yeah. Well, uh, that was not... I mean, I expected to have a diversion, but that was not actually the diversion that I expected to have. And we're going to have to move on from my anticipated diversion, other than to say um, that uh, last week, you know, I was talking about uh, Fountains of Wayne, not the band, but the store, the Fountains of Wayne, the store, yes. and uh, and saying that it was the, the, um, the inspiration for the name of the band of the same name. And, uh, and that I was speculating that it might've been on 287, which I, in retrospect, I realized didn't make any sense because I think 287 doesn't have com- a commercial strip attached to it. But then someone, um, someone reached out to me, uh, to tell me where they were from that part of New Jersey and to like, tell me where, uh, the store was. I can't remember what, uh, I guess it was on f- route 46, um, kind of outside of Wayne, New Jersey. And, uh, and I thought that's kind of nice. And then, um, you know, it turns out that Wayne, New Jersey, like most much of the Northeast, now is like um, floating away um, in in the streams of of several swollen nearby uh, rivers, as is, as is like you know, as are huge swaths of the East Coast, and at the same time, of course, huge swaths of Louisiana. Um, uh, and so, I just thought we should express our um, you know support and. Uh, prayers for um, not only the owners of Fountains of Wayne, the store, but um, all all those who are impacted by the extreme weather that our nation has been experiencing over this last... It's been pretty grim. It has. In fact, we have um, had sort of on our schedule, but not um, sort of slotted in, plans to interview a Louisiana bishop about kind of just his ongoing experience with pastoral needs during hurricanes and things like that. But the 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 interview keeps not happening. And part of the reason why the interview keeps not happening is that he's actually like helping people who are dealing with, you know, absolutely flooded parishes and churches and these kinds of things. And so the, the people who are there, who are in these places are really rolling up their sleeves and dealing with this gigantic cleanup and these kinds of things.
1: Yeah, no, it's all hands to the pumps. I mean, there was um, yeah. a, a priest I was I was trying to get in touch with just to see if he was okay in Louisiana and you know how things were going. And basically he couldn't answer his phone first because there was no um, mobile service and then because there was no power so he couldn't plug his phone in. And then what I did was like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm just spending all day chainsawing trees that are right. laying across the road you know yeah so no, you know it's it's all hence the pumps out there and you know i'm certainly praying for them
0: yeah um okay and then one other thing that's kind of a follow-up we were talking last week about uh, if you listen to the show you know that we were talking last week about propedeutic years spirituality years and uh and their place in seminaries and uh, we heard from a few people. Ed, I know you talked to a priest about this, and I did too. One of the things we sort of asked is, like, why might there be sort of a discomfort with or some people who, who prefer not to see sort of a full, singular, dedicated spirituality year in seminary formation? And we speculated about a couple of things. But one thing that uh, a, a couple people now have pointed out to us is that um, spirituality years, um, by virtue of not being academic in nature and not conferring academic credit— um, mean that um, seminarians with student loans can't have their loans deferred for that year. So, you know, it, being in a formation program that's not an academic program doesn't allow you to for, to to, to um, defer your loans. So there's a loan component to it. And there could be, it's a little bit tricky, but there could also be a visa issue for seminarians who are not from the United States if they're not enrolled in an academic program and they don't, you know, I, I don't think seminary, I think seminarians get student visas, not R1s, religious worker visas, because they're, not yet religious workers. Uh, so there could also be kind of a visa pro, you know, issue. Now, obviously, religious institutes probably have worked out ways to resolve the visa thing when they have you know, novices or whatever who are um, not from this country. But that can be an issue, and then the student loan thing can be an issue too. So since we heard about it, I felt like we should mention it for sort of complete and full and thorough discussion
1: thereof. Yeah, and the other thing I heard was, you know, with regards to the... the I think it's unique to America now, at least. The... Um, the phenomenon of college seminary, of, you know, undergraduate level seminary formation, basically, and then saying, well, if you built a propedutic year onto the front of that, um, they'd effectively be in college, but getting no credits. Right, right. Like they would, you know, it would be, you know, and how do you, how do you account for that? Effectively, So, yeah, um, it was nice to hear that. Uh, it was nice to hear from people. Well, just to have we a thorough,
0: more thorough sort of picture of the thing. I mean, I still, you know, my point was still, I think that this is going to have to happen because the Holy See says it's going to have to happen. But those yep. are obstacles to overcome.
1: Yes. And it's nice to have a, a fuller picture of that, because as we mentioned last week, you know, I, I was calling around trying to find someone who, right. who had concerns about this. I knew there were people with concerns, but I just couldn't find
0: anyone. And it's really good, too. I mean, you'd hate to think, oh, there are people, uh, there may well be, but you'd hate to think, oh, the sort of predominant sort of um, objection to this is we don't want seminarians to spend a year you know praying serving the poor doing manual labor and um and not using technology you'd hate to think that there was not a compelling uh, like a a reasonable argument in opposition um because you know whether one agrees with it or disagrees with it or everyone lands one hopes that people on all sides it's better i think when people on all sides have some position instead of just these are the absolute good guys and these are the bad guys yeah exactly Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. Okay. Well, uh, having talked about those things, uh, today was um, a day where we were covering something uh, that is kind of like a throwback, because uh, as a fellow who um, has obviously shaped a ton of news in the church, but is not in the news every day. But today, uh, Friday, September the 3rd, Theodore McCarrick, the Cardinal formerly, excuse me, the McCarrick formerly known as Cardinal, went to court to, uh, to be arraigned, and it was, an, it was a really short to-do it was a very short to do but i mean we we expected that whatever happened
1: it would be <clears throat> excuse me fairly short because that's what an arraignment is i mean it's yeah, yeah. you know you read the charges you mm-hmm. enter a plea and then the judge sets bail and any other conditions that uh, need to be imposed prior to the trial beginning and then so, a lot
0: of times in an arraignment because i watched a few in anticipation of McCarrick's so a lot of times in an arraignment the thing that takes the most time is sc- figuring out everyone's schedule to set the next thing the pre-trial conference whereas here they kind of had that set so they were but yeah i think theodore McCarrick's diary is fairly open I think he's um, pretty yeah pretty clear
1: mm-hmm. um, but it was it was very interesting to see him arrive in court you know I you know you, you haven't uh, he hasn't at least that I'm aware of appeared much in public since right. 2018 um, he's obviously gotten older since then frailer he's uh, certainly a diminished physical presence but there he was in court with a walker and you know. Uh, in civilian clothes, obviously, and it, I mean, it was interesting to see him appear. I I had not expected that he would show up in person. I thought that you know his legal team would enter a plea on his
0: behalf. Oh, you have um, to show up, or you can get arrested. Oh, really? I, yeah, I thought yeah. maybe I, I thought maybe there are accommodations sure that, that, that you can, but generally speaking, you have to show up to your arraignment or else you get arrested. Because it's right. the whole point of the arraignment is it's sort of this vestigial thing where the, the charges it stems, I think, from habeas corpus. Know, yes. Um, but um, the the process by which that takes place is, um, you know, that the charges need to be sort of formally read by a clerk in a sort of um, expository manner stems from the goal of securing the rights of the accused in a preliterary world. Because in, in theory, you could se- sort of secure habeas corpus on paper, right? I mean, all of this could be done on paper, but um, the, the theory is a person must sort of have the opportunity to hear these things viva voce. Mm. Well, and... and- good.
1: I'm in favor of good due process, obviously. Uh, and it also, I mean, just brief as, brief as the appearance was, the fact that he was there, the fact that he was there himself, yeah. uh, entered the and they entered the plea of not guilty and everything. Uh, it just goes to show this, this is happening. This is really happening. Um, there doesn't appear to be any suggestion he's going to plead illness or infirmity or you know, inability to stand trial or anything or like that. Well,
0: seek a plea because his, his, his attorneys keep saying, well, we, we're going to, f- they said it again today, we're going to, 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 like, to the press, they're like, we're going to um, prove this, you know, we're looking forward to making our case in court and these kinds of things. Like, these are not people who are saying we're going to, um, you know, we'll, we'll see how this works out or something like that, but who are at least intimating that they intend to resolve it in trial rather than with a plea or something else.
1: Yeah. I mean... i I was always kind of skeptical of the idea that he might enter a plea of uh, a plea bargain of some kind because i you know if there's one thing we've understood about the psychology of theodore mccarrick it is never apologize
0: that's true that is true at at the same time i was skeptical that he was going to that he was going to go to trial because my biggest expectation is that his lawyers were going to say that he wasn't fit for it um and yet there he is and yet there he is i'm yeah
1: five thousand dollar bail which uh so, here's an interesting thing. I wondered, is the is the five thousand dollars bail tied to some sort of empirical juridic benchmark or practice oh. in Massachusetts, or is that a legitimate assessment of what's a sizable chunk of change for Ted McCarrick these days?
0: Oh yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Like, what are the bail guidelines and how are they? Should we cover that? Do you think we should cover that?
1: well, if we if we can, I don't know. I don't know. um, but I mean, because the question that came to my mind when they said five thousand dollars was I thought, I, You know, it's been an open question and a point of fascination for me for, well, three years now is, where's McCarrick's money? Where did mm-hmm. it go? Yeah. Because he had a lot. Um, you know, he had a personal slush fund as Archbishop of Newark and then also Archbishop of Washington that had, you know, millions of dollars cycle through it over the years. And he was pretty good about spreading it around. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm curious. W- what are the worldly means of Theodore McCarrick. I, you know, it's, it it, to me is a lingering question about his entire case, his entire career in the church. Um, I I would like to know. And, you know, if if it turns out that $5,000 is a sort of standard bail benchmark figure in Dedham, Massachusetts, then cool. But on the other hand, if, you know, there's a there's a court practice somewhere that says, no, you set it to, you know, it's pegged to some sort of percentage of assets or income or whatever, so that it's reflective of status, then I
0: would be interested to know that. I don't think that's the case. And the reason why is because I I, I, I mentioned this in a sort of thing I wrote about what arraignments are a couple weeks ago. But, you know, Kevin Spacey was charged with effectively the same crime in Massachusetts a couple of years ago um, on Martha's Vineyard. And uh, and eventually the charges were dropped because they couldn't, there were issues with the evidence and people wouldn't testify and these kinds of things. But, he was indeed arraigned and uh, and um, not assessed any bail. Um, so he um, was released sort of, as they might say, on his own recognizance um, rather than with a set bail at all. And obviously, I think Kevin Spacey has more money than Theodore McCarrick, I suspect, um, you know. Uh, and so um, I don't think it would be tied to sort of a percentage of assets or or something like that, uh, you know. um would be interesting to find out, but the more interesting question—the reason why you're asking—is exactly this: the one, the, one of the pieces of McC- of this sort of MacCarrick universe that has not at all been resolved um, and come to the fore, and really in which there could be um, significant information about um, the life of the church and what sort of the McCarrick sequence can reveal about the life of the church and help us to understand, therefore make able to be reformed in the life of the church is his uh, financial practice. So we know that he was a great fundraiser. Uh, We know that people, when he was Archbishop of Newark and when he was Archbishop of Washington, were giving money to effectively something called the Archbishop's Fund, which was something, you know, of effectively a a McCarrick, an unmonitored McCarrick slush fund, um, and, uh, um, you know, which we know had more than six you know had six figures or more of cash in it with six figures
1: coming in and out of it every
0: year from what we can tell right exactly it seems that in washington when he was in washington he was rather than taking a salary effectively expensing his life to his to the mccarrick fund which raises tax questions and questions about archdiocesan Um, monitoring and financial responsibility and these kinds of things, because these were archdiocesan funds, and so it could be an issue there. Um, But none of the financial information about McCarrick has really come to light. Um, We asked Cardinal Tobin, the Archbishop of Newark what he would release about his own sort of internal investigation into McCarrick, kind of culturally in Newark, but also financially, several years ago. And he told us that um, he couldn't release anything because there was um, an ongoing Attorney General's investigation, which is true, um, and there's still an ongoing attorney general. Well, which is it is true that there is still an ongoing attorney general's investigation. Uh, it's not manifestly clear to me that that means the archdiocese is sort of legally prohibited from releasing anything. But he he said that that was what he had to do. But that investigation sort of has not closed. And I, I've talked to sources in New Jersey who, you know, I I I wouldn't say I'm at the point where we could sort of report the status. But I've certainly talked to sources in New Jersey close to the attorney general's office who say that there are any sort of number of iterations of electoral politics in play about when the investigation you know might close and uh, and so um that is sort of forestalling things there and in the archdiocese of washington no sort of reason has been given there's just sort of well the um, initial reason no. that
1: was given under the time of cardinal Whirl was that they were waiting for that the, all the relevant files about mccarrick's finances had been transmitted to rome as part of the sort of dragnet towards producing the mccarrick report but we've had the mccarrick report now yeah um, so where is it? But, again, right. but we, the answer seems is, to is just, but no um, as, as we've noted in a lot of our financial reporting over the years, uh, the Archdiocese of Washington don't tend to answer questions about that.
0: Well, that's one thing about the Archdiocese of Washington that seems to be sort of interestingly true generally is that there is a dichotomy. I, I didn't know we were going to go there, but there is a dichotomy between, um, and, and it's being noticed. This is not just Ed and JD saying there's a dichotomy. I hear this from other journalists now more and more often. Between the the rhetoric of Gregory at the at the time of his of the announcement of his appointment to Washington, um, I will always tell you the truth. I have to regain um, credibility and trustworthiness by telling you the truth. The playbook um, of circling the wagons has been proven to be bad, and we are right, going to break exactly. from that. Um, and the media strategy of the Archdiocese of Washington, which again a lot of journalists would say, not this is not Ed and JD with an X. This is my observation of a lot of journalists and my conversations with a lot of journalists who would say the Archdiocese of Washington is one of the more closed press shops in, in the American church, that it's simply just hard to get responses or answers out of them, um, that, uh, you know, that, that questions get sent in and don't come out. And, uh, and so um, that this information hasn't come out, it, it, it's, it's interesting, you know, if a strategy is in right? If so, the idea is, okay, the McCarrick thing in 2018 was a scandal, um, and people are sort of demanding accountability, um, and some aspects of that accountability have not yet emerged, there's a way in which it might be thought, okay, well, one strategy is just indoor, just wait that out. And um, and it, the funny thing is it can be an effective strategy because the longer you wait, the fewer people keep at you know, the fewer people there are who keep asking for things. And then eventually the people who do keep asking for things end up looking fringy, right? They keep asking, they keep asking, they're there's sort of these fringe figures who keep asking. A question that years earlier everyone was asking, right? So this the sort of indoor strategy, if that is the play. It is not ineffective. I think it is effective. But um, but I think if we want to see where the pieces are on the board, what is manifestly true is that answers about McCarrick's money, which are of interest because um, they connect to who are other ecclesiastical figures who McCarrick sort of influenced or attempted to influence by these gifts that he's known to have given, and what are the ways in which that might have become a self-protection network, and what are the ways in which that self-protection network might still exist, and you know how does that aid in the holiness and accountability of the church— um, those questions remain unanswered. And again, is you know the question for me is, is the enduring strategy actually what's in play? And will the trial, I would hope? I would think, you know, that the trial might revitalize a broader sort of media push for resolution and transparency on those things? I certainly hope so, although at this point
1: my my hopes are not high.
0: yeah, no, neither am I. In fact, you know, it's interesting. I think it has become clear that it is unlikely that um, these dioceses intend to reveal these interesting things, um, these important things about financial, uh, about the financial records of McCarrick, et cetera, et cetera. And as it becomes clear, you know, I think there are journalists, too, who stop asking because they get the hint and they don't want to sort of just be, um, if they're labeled as nags about something, then it's even harder to get things out of. Um, you know, get things out of people, get interviews with people, get answers to other questions, get cooperation on stories, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's a disincentive to keep asking if you want the cooperation of the institution. And so even now during the trial, there may well be, uh, you know, it may well be that a lot of reporters are disinclined to ask because they don't want to let that one thing sort of sever entirely or dramatically shape the relationship to significant and powerful figures in the church, which, you know, in a certain way, many journalists say they depend on those relationships, um, and that all of that impedes um, the expectation of transparency that in 2018 was universally understood to be important. Yep. Although there will always be those journalists for whom that one thing is the
1: only thing that actually matters and everything else is fluff.
0: (laughs) Well, right. There will. Right. And, and, and then there'll be people who, who don't want to, you know, what's interesting is I, I don't think that's true. I don't think that's the only thing that actually matters. I don't think you think that's the only thing that, that actually matters in the life That's of the church. The only and question I'm asking to those institutions well, that the I want to answer. That to. I'm asking, th- this is what I wanted to say. It's like I don't think it's the only thing that matters, but um, but it is the, the unanswered question. And the more it's the unanswered question, the more in my mind there becomes an imperative to keep asking. And the, mm-hmm. the challenge I think even for us is like one does not want to become you know no one who's sort of in the media wants to become a one trick pony. I don't want us to become a one trick pony and sort of only be sort of telling one story or banging one drum. I, I don't think we are and I don't think we, we that is that is sort of the nature of our of our project. Um, but, you know, there is on the one hand, the need to keep banging the drum to, to my mind, just to sort of responsibly practice our craft for the sake of these goals in the church, for the sake of the holiness of, our, of the church, which is our sort of pre- prevailing um, motivation for the things that we do. And at the same time, um, you know, just a growing frustration, which is why the, and a way in which one trick ponies just too easily get sort of discounted overall, which is why that indoor strategy is effective, just wait it out and eventually... You know, you'll the other sort of the, the people asking the questions appear discredited by that very fact.
1: Yeah, um, it's frustrating. It is frustrating, although I tend to think that the people who refuse to ask simple questions about obviously relevant information are the ones who end up discrediting themselves. But
0: well, I, I do, too. But, that you know, I do, too, in in a certain way. But that doesn't end up being the case. And you can think of journalists who have been asking questions for a long time and become. By virtue of that fact, um, it, it, legitimate journalists, I'm not talking about sort of like, um, you know. You're kinda, not talking about me, you're talking about real no, I'm talking about, <laughs> No, I'm talking about you, but I, I'm not talking about like, you know, um, a- advocacy organizations which might frame themselves in a militant, with a sort of militant uh, motif. Uh, I'm, you know, um, uh, I, I'm not talking about that kind of thing. I'm talking about legitimate, you know, journalists even for secular press who, who say, yeah, I kept asking these questions until after a while I, I realized that I had burned contacts by it and it was harder and harder for me to do any part of my job yeah but here's what i find interesting and here's what i find encouraging um is that um i sometimes hear some catholic journalists and this came out of the mccarrick report actually there was a catholic journalist who was interviewed the mccarrick report who said well you know i didn't push too hard i didn't investigate too hard on sort of rumors that i heard about mccarrick because um high-level churchmen are my sources and i don't want to sort of alienate them, and essentially describing a, a relationship of symbiosis between his vision of the Catholic press and high-level churchmen, and um, and therefore not sort of wanting to upset the apple cart. You know, that obviously, I think for a lot of people, was sort of um, eye-opening. But one part of it that was interesting to me is that um, I find the people who are our most uh, effective um, sources and the people who become most reliable sources are not. I mean, it is a mistake to think that high-level churchmen are going to be the most effective sources. The most effective sources are people who are in and around the church, who love the church, and uh, and w- with whom a relationship of trust can be built over time. And so this idea like, well, I don't want to, you know, if, if I take off the cardinal, I can't do my job, that strikes me as a sort of relatively narrow frame of reference for doing the, the job. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I would absolutely agree. I I could say more, but I don't want to appear to be ungracious. <laughs> I feel like we're sort of plunging back into all the stuff we were talking about in 2018 and 2019. And we're and with the tri- with this trial, the next date of it is October 28th. I feel like we're going to be talking about a lot of those things again by the time of the U.S. bishops meeting in November. I mean, man, it will be really interesting. By the time of the U.S. bishops meeting in November, the McCarrick trial will be in its throes in one way or another. So the next date is something called a pretrial conference, and that's ahead of the jury trial. But it's, it's entirely possible that a jury may, in fact, be convened by the time of the bishops' meeting in November. So there will be that. There will be the uh, election of a new general secretary of the USCCB after the former general secretary resigned. And there will be this ongoing debate about um, the Eucharistic coherence document. So that meeting is just going to have, which will be the first, insofar as I can tell, unless things continue, I think, to be virusy, um, that is expected to be the first in person meeting of the bishops. in years now uh, since 2019 yeah since, since, 2019. since November, 2019 yeah and um and it's going to be an intense one i as you know
1: don't often look forward to um USCCB meetings but that one is going to be very very interesting
0: there's going to be a lot going on I mean, there's going to be a lot of
1: news which yeah. is why i'm looking forward to it
0: and um and so one of the things you know that that with the mccarrick trial there and the election of a new general secretary one of the things that um, will nevertheless be a sort of prominent part of that meeting will be uh, this uh, debate over a drafted Eucharistic coherence document and possible vote on a Eucharistic coherence document. And the news this week, um, both from Texas and the White House, I think may shift the terms or shift the positions of some um, in the course of that debate. I do agree. I think that the
1: the the upper and lower bound of the sort of neutral middle bishop is going to shift as a result of this, because, of course, we had the the Supreme Court declined to block the Texas heartbeat law coming into force, which is not to say they upheld the constitutionality of the law. They simply said that the abortion groups that sued to get a stay against the law, basically, um, didn't have standing, that they couldn't prove harm. So and the
0: law, just before you go, the law uh, prohibits abortions in Texas after a fetal heartbeat can be detected. So which, which is generally usually around, is around six, six weeks. weeks. And, and since very few abortions take place before six weeks, you know, effectively prohibiting abortion in Texas. And, uh, and so the law was challenged to the Supreme court, the Supreme court might have sort of injuncted it while it was litigated, you know, stopped it from coming into force, but instead allowed it to come into force effectively while it will still be litigated, but allowed it to come into force. Meaning that right now it is illegal in Texas to perform an abortion, um, on a, Child uh, to, to abort a child who whose heartbeat can be detected by heartbeat detection machines. I don't know the names. But um, uh, so the Supreme Court didn't block that. And then mm, what happened after that, Ed? Uh, well, our quote-unquote devout Catholic president, Joe Biden, uh,
1: issued a, a memo from the White House in which he said that he had personally ordered the White House Counsel's Office to coordinate a whole-of-government response mm-hmm. um, to basically insulate abortion providers from the terms of the Texas law. That basically Biden has mobilized the entire executive branch of the federal government to try and spike a, you know, again, saving the constitutionality of the law being litigated in court, which is ongoing, an otherwise duly passed piece of legislation by a state government. Uh, and Which is interesting to me because, of course, uh, when Joe Biden was... Uh, participating in a vice presidential debate back in 2012, he was asked about his beliefs on abortion and his party's platform on abortion. And he said that life begins at conception, that this is the teaching of his church and he accepts it in his personal life, but he does not believe that it was his place to impose his views on anyone else. And it is my I I think my pretty straight reading of the facts that President Biden's views have changed on abortion and also his views on imposing his views
0: on abortion on other people. Well, that's just it is this seems to be a real um, an actualization of a shift that Biden has sort of demonstrated over the past several years. So, I mean, you know, I think most listeners know that at one point Biden sort of um, represented himself as as pro-life and then over time began to sort of fall into the personally opposed but. Um, camp, and then um, as he began running for president, shifted from personally opposed but to um, uh, advocating to maximum for maximum abortion advocacy. Yeah, yeah advocating for um, a, a f- the passage of federal law through Congress that would uh, essentially uh, uh, enshrine uh, legal protections for abortion in federal law, um, you know, a- advocating for. Um, Federal funding for, you know, for for doing away with the Hyde Amendment, which for for a long time has prohibited federal funding for many abortions, but advocating for sort of doing away with that and therefore permitting federal funding for abortion. And, uh, and those things sort of seem to represent you know, or did represent a shift from, again, personally opposed to advocacy for. And this becomes an actualization of that in a very concrete way for the, you know, the head of the federal government to say, The state government has done something effectively that I oppose and another branch of government, the Supreme Court, which is responsible for reviewing that, has acted in a way that I oppose. And therefore, I'm going to put the resources of the branch that I control, the the executive branch, sort of fully at the disposal of thwarting this legislative effort and judicial decision is a kind of activity that is not just indicating a position, but being in and, and expressing a position of not personally opposed, but to... I am going to ensure that legal protection for abortion is available, you know, actively working for legal protections for abortion, even in a contravention of decisions of legislatures and courts and these kinds of things.
1: Well, and this is it. This is both legally and morally and literally an executive act by the president. This is an act that executes something that things happen as a result of what he has done. So, for example, uh, on Thursday morning, When the Supreme Court's decision percolated through because it was issued late on Wednesday night, um, abortions are, at least on paper, as you say, currently illegal in Texas after six weeks of pregnancy. If it comes about that thanks to Joe Biden's whole government response, uh, more abortions are able to take place than are currently permitted by the state law, those abortions are a direct result of his action that there is moral culpability there. It is not the same thing as to say that he procured um, the abortions, procured but any of the individual abortions, but nevertheless with, abortions yeah, happen because of him. Yeah, Yes. Right, he yeah, is a material yeah. cooperator in a very, very particular way, mm-hmm. um, a very particular way, which is um, very much against church teaching, JD. This is very naughty. This is very bad. Um, we, the, we have, uh, we put out an explainer earlier this week on sort of what the church teaches on abortion, because of course, there is uh, a fairly broad understanding, I would say, culturally, both in and out of the church, that the church deems abortion to be immoral. Um, most people even understand that the church holds and proclaims that every abortion is an evil act. Uh, but there's often, thanks to prominent Catholic politicians like Joe Biden, uh, a sort of uh, misconception that the, it's possible for a Catholic or a Catholic politician to hold the position that while I am personally opposed, I would not impose my beliefs on wider society uh, through political acts. When in fact, the church teaches exactly the opposite. The church teaches that um, abortion being evil is not a matter of um, religious doctrine, that this is a point of natural law and basic human rights and justice. And that if a government legally permits abortion, if there is a positive protection for the laceity of abortion, in the words of the CDF, uh, this is itself a gravely immoral act. And in fact, what the church teaches, oh, and just by the way, in case anyone thinks that this is like, you know, sort of retrograde, ultra conservative, whatever, quote unquote Catholicism, that the words of Vatican II in Gaudium Spes that abortion is an abominable crime. That's, that's the mm-hmm. teaching. Of, this, yes, yeah. that's, that's the spirit of Vatican II on abortion is <laughs> abominable crime. And crime, indeed, it is. And a crime, indeed, the church teaches and has always taught it must be in civil law. That the church doesn't say, oh, well, you know, everyone's got moral freedom and you should try and just, you know, do the right thing and hope that other people will do the right thing too. No, the church says that, yeah, there are some cases where the state must tolerate sort of moral autonomy and even the freedom to choose the wrong because to try and prohibit it would lead to a worse situation, but abortion ain't one of those cases that the, the church has taught um, through the, the papal magisterium, again, Second Vatican Council, and also various instructions from the CDF uh, very clearly that abortion should be a civil crime, that this is, this is murder that this is the take the deliberate taking of an innocent human life, and the, that it must not be legal. The CDF says very
0: clearly, it's not just that abortion can't be legal, but that the, uh, it's in that 74 document that like it it should be a crime for which there are sanctions, you know, I think it was the 87th document actually. Okay, yeah, so Dona Vitae, which says there should be sanctions for these kinds of things. The, the Church has, the the CDF has offered a sort of very specific and comprehensive set of of, of teachings on, on the, the sort of responsibilities of the state uh, to abortion. And so to sort of just say, uh, you know and those do not permit the um i'm personally opposed but in fact you know don vitae evangelium vitae and other places to say no um to sort of say that one would not impose his conscience on others or something like that uh, you know is not an acceptable position for a catholic on these issues and and the, the this is why evangelium vitae has a good reflection on that i, I have you know there are catholics it's who just, ask Sorry, me, before we go, the, go we should also note this is also the teaching of pope francis right that pope
1: francis has called abortion
0: eugenics he's compared it to Nazi eugenics he said, talked about this first principles idea um yes. you know so the notion the, the notion oh, there is an argument of uh, that is said of uh, we can't uh, prohibit abortion until we have a sufficient social safety net to care for every child and, and mother who is in poverty or something like that and it is true that we should have a sufficient social safety net to care for every child and mother and the social safety nets in America are, are anemic and i'm i'm you know pretty um boisterous on a robust social safety network but um the one thing that's worth noting here is that the church's documents on this have said consistently: um, ending legal protection for abortion is a matter of first principles required for assuring just social safety nets and social justice in other ways. So it's not let's get let's make everything perfect and then we can um, prohibit abortion. It's um, it's uh, let's prohibit abortion and then seeing the real lay of the land respond appropriately and justly.
1: Right, and and none of this is to say that. Um, the proper way to hopefully end abortion is just to pass new laws or yeah. to get the right court judgments. I want to be clear about that because there is kind of this mechanistic approach to, well, we need to end abortion by just capturing the right organs of state and making it illegal and anyone who goes against it, throwing them in jail. Like That, that is not a complete solution here, that it is necessary to create an actual culture of life because let's be clear, the way you get laws passed that make abortion legal or illegal is by a consensus, by, mm-hmm. a, by having a body politic that elects people who will do that. So you're never going to see, for example, a congressional law prohibiting abortion or enshrining the full scope of Roe v. Wade, as Biden wants to have happen, passed without a suitable democratic consensus to elect a body of persons who will pass That law. So it is absolutely essential, not it would be a nice add on, but it is essential that this is primarily a cultural event that we have to create a culture of life that this is necessary and not to do so is to doom any progress like the Texas heartbeat law to a temporary victory because even let's be clear, even if Texas, um, even if the Texas law stands, like I don't know if you've been keeping an eye on the demographics of Texas. The political demographics of Texas, but I mean, it seems like pretty much everyone in Southern California is moving to Texas.
0: Yeah, the bl- Texas is uh, you know the blueification of Texas, or whatever. yeah.
1: I mean, Austin is basically San Francisco with cowboy hats now, um, <laughs> which I do. I want to be clear, I, I don't mean that in a good way. Um, but uh, you know, and also, Houston is you know what the third largest city in the country now, I, or I fourth think that's anyway, right. fourth yeah. anyway, and in that's that, definitely reliably. Um, of the sort of voting persuasion that would overturn this law. Mm -hmm. So you can have a Texas heartbeat law um, on the books, and that's great. And let me be clear, every single life spared as a result of that law for as long as it's able to stand is good and worth it. But we we, we need a permanent solution. We need something that is going to end abortion permanently and is not going to just be a question of, well, whoever won the last electoral cycle gets to set the terms. That we need to get past that.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. Whether that what 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 that means, whether that means, you know, that's why people I think continue to talk about the human life amendment and a constitutional amendment to prohibit abortion and these kinds of things. I, I'm outside of my realm of policy expertise by any stretch of the imagination, but it is true that the sort of um the sort of seesaw uh, of abortion politics is not uh, a sustainable reality.
1: Right, and and to be clear, I I have. If I had to pick a percentage chance of the Supreme Court eventually upholding the Texas heartbeat law when it gets there for actual consideration on its merits, I think it's probably uh, pretty low. I, I, I would say I have 30% confidence that the Supreme Court would uphold the Texas heartbeat law um, because, I mean, let's be clear, the five justices who uh, voted not to issue a stay against the law. Are, are, it's not going to get any bigger than that, no matter what. You know, you're not going to have either Roberts or any of the other justices who voted to suspend the law. Yeah, so
0: it would be money. five four. It, it would be five four, or else, or else the people who are opposing it will turn somebody.
1: And yeah. anyone who thinks, well, those five are rock solid and they're, you know, they're going to deliver the goods. Just prepare yourself for a Charlie Brown with the football moment, because you know, that's, I would, I would encourage, yeah, I would, I would encourage all of you to read. The Supreme Court majority decision in Bostock versus Clayton County, which was written by Justice Neil Gorsuch, oh. and uh, and you tell me that that reads like the the legal mind of a guy who's going to chuck out Planned Parenthood v. Casey? Because
0: I don't think so. Yeah i I think that's I, I i think there's a i think there is indeed a low probability. I wanted to uh, I wanted to just mention quickly kind of a um, an analogy to the all social justice pieces need to be in place sort of, um, th- argument. Cause I hear that more often than I hear uh, these days. I hear that more often than I hear don't impose our conscience kind of thing. Um, I, I was talking to the parent, you know, I, I have, uh, uh, two of my kids have intellectual disabilities. And so we talked to other parents who have kids with dis- intellectual disabilities, and there's a whole n- network of sort of disability parents out there. So I was talking to a, a family recently who, um, who have, a, a-, a daughter with, um, like my children have down syndrome and, Um, not in our diocese, but in different dioceses, and they uh, wanted to enroll their daughter uh, in the the pair school. And, you know, uh, kids with Down syndrome go to Catholic schools at staggeringly low rates, and that's problematic and a poverty for everyone and these kinds of things, but one comes to expect it. This school was interesting because they said, indeed, um, we would— be very glad to enroll your daughter. We very much want to en- enroll your daughter, but we don't have much experience with this. And so we want to take a couple of years preparing this, the, our school and the culture of our school to be ready to receive a child with Down syndrome. And the, you know, the parents said, well, I, we, yes, it is reasonable that you want to take time to um, prepare the school to uh, um, receive a child. And, and you know, but how much time? And they're like, well, you know, we're thinking if we do uh, sort of a cultural preparation and special ed resource build up over the period of several years, then we might be ready, you know. Through. And, By the time uh, the student and, and, is no right. longer but, needing to go to that school. And, and the, the idea was the same. Um, we can't say yes to life in this way until we are sufficiently sort of prepared for life in this way. And what the parents said is, you know, the problem with that is that this life exists right now, first of all. And this child wants to go to school right now. And we don't want to send our child to public schools for a variety of reasons. And you are our school. And the church says that disabled people have a right to participate in the life of the church and these kinds of things. So the problem is that. But also, you cannot sufficiently prepare for humans as an abstraction. Um, You know, their point to the school was, this is our daughter. She has a face and a name and particularities. And um, to devise the curriculum that will best, uh, you know, adaptations that will best work for her means knowing her. And to devise, to respond to the cultural issues that this will uh, address mean Um, seeing what happens when she is here and seeing what the needs are and then responding to them and being prepared and open to be flexible and respond to what the needs are and those kinds of things. But you cannot sort of um, prepare interminably for a person as an abstraction without the presence of the person to demand of you what their presence actually demands and to contribute, in fact, what their presence actually contributes. And and, and it just struck me like it seems so manifestly obvious to me that that response, we need to take years and years and years to get ready, was not the response of a culture of life, right? Because a family with a culture of life says, yes, and then let's, you know, see what we need to do to be prepared. And it seems to me a Paris community with a culture of life does the same thing. Um, Yes, and let's, know how to respond. And and if that's true, then a true culture of life, I think, begins with a yes. And then um, the yes demands generosity. It's unquestionably true that the yes demands generosity. And I think it is probably unquestionably true that the social safety net of the state of Texas is not sort of sufficiently at the moment generous to provide sort of the the living conditions and, and respect, respect for human dignity that um, the, the church would uh, say is required of a just society. I'm speculating that and maybe you'll challenge it but if that I, is i don't true, want to challenge it just to no because i said something like that
1: um last night when i was talking about this and somebody actually told me it's like did you know that apparently the texas legislature passed a a very large um tens of millions i think possibly even a hundred million dollar social safety net boost to oh wow, company."
0: This so that's all, that's I did not know that and that's I did not know I haven't read that, the details right? but I was the, I just wanted to flag that as people so someone the, told the, me that I did because I was not informed of that the yes demands generosity and um and the yes demands generosity of us as a polis um and not and sometimes that generosity is not volitional generosity like well we should all be charitable but generosity which is uh, in fact um the generosity of justice which is to say ensuring the rights of people to have the things which are their rights and you know ensuring that the government will fulfill its function and over and and, and, and mediate that um. All of those things are true, but um, it does not seem that to me that you get there without the yes, because the 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 um, um, move uh, of preparation for an abstraction, first of all, it just becomes sort of paralytic, and um, and second of all, there are always ways in which the fear of say of the yes or the opposition to the yes or whatever can find other modes of preparation that lead to um, the not yet. So that was the one thing. Now, there were Catholics who were asking me and have continued to ask me, okay, if I were in the Texas legislature, though, do I, and I'm Catholic and I'm pro-life, would I have to support the passage of this law? Like, there, there are some interesting fact, sort of legal aspects of this law, the way in which, you know, the the state law enforcement agencies don't have the responsibility to enforce the law, in fact, can't enforce the law. Rather, it gives the prerogative of citizens to fi- to, to, to litigate. Uh, you know, to sue those who perform abortions um, or otherwise facilitate abortions. So this
1: this surprised me. The objection to, um, and because this is something Biden made a huge song and dance about it. You're yeah. inserting strangers into the into the most right. you know personal decisions. First of all, the government is a stranger, and second of all, Joe Biden. And his administration are trying very, very hard to inject the strangers of the government into the private moral calculus of Catholic doctors who don't wish to be compelled to perform abortions and Catholic nurses who don't wish to participate. So he's fine injecting strangers into that private moral calculus. Um, But the other thing is, like, as a legal matter, the idea of private prosecutions is not weird. Like, this has existed in the common law system since the 16th century, that, you know, in not long ago in Britain, certainly, um, I think it was only like as recently as 200 years ago or maybe even less than that, like all prosecutions were private, that that's that's the only way you could right. get satisfaction in law was the agree that was the victim brought the case um, that, that this is not uh, a legal innovation by any stretch of the imagination. Um, again, I don't know the I don't know the state by state breakdown here in federal law. But again, in, in the UK, which, you know, again, we have a common, common law system, Uh, private prosecutions are still perfectly acceptable. That there are entire organizations like the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals that Mm -hmm. have huge swathes of their entire purpose of being to bring private
0: prosecutions regarding relevant law. And an attorney told me that that's how Medicaid fraud or Medicare fraud works in the United States too, is, is effectively, yeah, Medicare fraud effectively that there's, you know, there's a similar sort of mechanism of enforcement. So, um, but but nevertheless, I mean, people have raised that objection. So a Catholic asked me, or a, a few people asked me, would I, as a Catholic in the Texas legislature, be required to support this law? And and I do think it is true that, you know, if a person had a set of objections to the mechanisms of the law or the, you know, enforcement mechanisms, of the law, I don't think the church says, in, in fact, it seems to me clear from having read the, the relevant instructions, the church does not say one must support every single thing you know, kind of law which would prohibit, you know, which would limit legal protections for abortion or something like that. If one thinks that the the means of doing so is unjust or something like that, um, and even now, you know, Texas, Texans in the Texas legislature, if they said we don't like the enforcement mechanism, could bring forward um, legislation to change or modify the enforcement mechanism, right, to say this is not the right way to prohibit abortion, therefore we should have this enforcement mechanism instead of that enforcement mechanism. Yeah, there is, It's you know, it's not as if every single time a bill which has the label pro-life on the top comes up, a Catholic has an obligation to... Um, you know, to support it or, or something like that, because there can be prudent disagreements about the the way of pursuing this. There have been, for you know, a few years ago, sort of the personhood um, movement of, of con- state constitutional amendments was in, very much in vogue. And it seems to me it might be coming back, but this sort of personhood movement was very much in vogue. And the pro-life movement, advocates for, for an end to abortion were split. There were people who thought, no, this is a waste of our time and money, because courts will obviously overturn this. And there are people who thought, no, we need to just, you know, throw as many things at the courts as we can and see what sticks. So, you know, there were legitimate disagreements about sort of strategy towards the goal. Um, And that's fine. The church, in fact, says that's legitimate. That does seem to me to be, though, categorically different from saying, um, uh, no, what we need to do is ensure, uh, you know, the right to legal protection for abortion, universal access to abortion, period, because that is a human right. That's, far more clearly in direct opposition to what the church says the state has an obligation to do, which is prohibit um, legal protection for abortion and in fact do so vigorously. So anyway, I, I, you know, I, I don't think it would be, I think it would be a um, mistake to, to sort of, uh, to sort of say, no, every time someone says this is the right law, every Catholic has to jump on it. But that, but one must make a distinction between understanding the responsibilities of the state vis-a-vis abortion and disagreements about you know, mediating sort of strategies and, and and practicalities and things like that. Yeah. Well, with the full with the promise that the full force of government will be rallying against Texas, we will no doubt be continuing to hear about this and see this. And 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 to my point earlier, this will be sort of interesting because I think the president's sort of uh, we didn't get back to this, but the president's. Active opposition to this, rather than sort of neutrality on this, or not doing any, you know, or, or or not doing anything on this. But the president's active opposition on this, saying I'm going to bring to bear the full force of the executive branch on this. I have to imagine that there will be bishops who heretofore have been saying no, we don't want to seem to be partisan, we don't want to seem to be punitive, we want to work with the president who is Catholic and his party on other things. I, I have to imagine there will be at least some bishops, not all. Not the most assiduous, but at least some bishops who will be more inclined to say, yeah, our Eucharistic coherence document should address rather clearly the scandal of Catholic politicians, like promoting and pursuing legal protection well, for even a question of promoting, facilitating, facilitating. actively. yeah, yeah.
1: It is a, and this is the argument that I made um, in conversations we've had in the past about uh, now former governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, and the signing into law of that state's horrific abortion bill in I think it was 2019, uh, is that there is a difference between a single vote in a legislature to support an an abortion law uh, and a sine qua non-executive act. That is an act that without which it could not happen. So, you know, if, if Senator Biden is one of 54 senators who vote for an abortion law, his culpability is one level if President Biden orders the executive government to do something which it could not do except for
0: his order, that is a completely different level of responsibility. Yeah, I think that's right. And so I I do think this probably changes the map for the bishops, or at least will sharpen. If it doesn't change the map, I think it will sharpen the, you know, disagreement such that it will become far more stringent between those who want the Eucharistic coherence document to be, you know, to talk about Catholic politicians and public life and political responsibility and those kinds of things, and those who don't. Because, yeah. you know, th- this, I think, will seem to many bishops to be um, a, a, a far more egregious, egregious situation than the one that we had even in, in June. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, Ed. Yo. Monday is Labor Day. and uh, Oh, yeah. Are we taking mm- Monday off? Well, I, I told Kate—so the pool, our, our little neighborhood pool closes on Monday, so <sighs> Monday's the last day for the pool. So I told Kate that I was planning to work in the morning and then take the afternoon off so I could go— go to the pool with everybody
1: sold let's do that
0: okay so uh okay so Monday is labor day and um uh traditionally in many parts of the country people go back to school after labor day although um in my part of the country people are back to school already but it is back to school time is it not it it is it is well it seemed to me therefore appropriate to play a back to school themed game so and oh one would you like to play a game and yes um, i would two um would you like to play back to school yes or no Oh, definitely. Yes, please. Okay. So these are things which are um, affiliated in one way or another with um, with with school, with um, either uh, uh, young people school or college or something like that. So affiliated in one way or another with school and things on which I suspect you may have strong ed esque um, opinion. <laughs> <I> don't <laughs> know opinions. what you mean. Well, you know, I think these are the kinds of things on which you will have sort of yeah strong, uh, pot- potentially strong opinions. Okay. Okay. So back to school, yes or no. Here we go. The way yes or no works, by the way, is I'm just going to give Ed a list of things, and he's going to give me his sort of immediate visceral internal response to them, which will be either yes or no. And he can't change his mind because he is going to let his yes be yes and his no be no. He can explain to me after if he wants, but the first thing he has to do is just give me his reaction to the thing. Are you ready? Back to school, yes or no. Class is in session. Ed, fraternities. No. No. ed saved by the bell no ed opening school with the mass of the holy spirit yes hard yes wait a minute no saved by the bell no i hated that show because you're english so you guys probably didn't watch it as much
1: no i was i I was in the states until 93 you you hated saved by the bell it was insipid there were no sympathetic characters in that i didn't like anyone they were all annoyed. They put it. I, I and and as I've grown up, I can't be wistful about the
0: show and look back on it because. Zach, I look, Jesse, Kelly, Lisa, Slater, and Screech—those are some sympathetic characters. Even Tori, if you want to go that, if you want to go that far, Mister Belding, Mister Tuttle. Ms. I Bliss. I do not feel I would have been friends in high school with any of those people. Well, did you have very many friends in high school?
1: No. <laughs> okay, so maybe this is part of it. Is I just don't I I, I did um in the course of my secondary education i was at a as you often remind yeah, you went to me hogwarts. you went to hogwarts high mm-hmm. for most year of old hogwarts my, high for mm-hmm. most of my high school education i also did um what would be referred to as quote-unquote senior year
0: uh at a at an international american style high school so, so because, you went to a boarding school until you were a senior and then you went to a kind of um an american high school in london for your senior year because the theory was I might wish to apply to American universities uh, uh-huh. and
1: um, so it would be easier to do if I had a sort of American-style transcript. Uh, did you have to,
0: did your teacher at any point stand up on a desk and make you rip out the pages of your poetry book? No, poetry was not an offer in that school. Did Brendan um, Fraser go to your school? Did Brendan Fraser Frazier go to your school and then people said anti-Semitic things to him and then he stood out in the rain and shouted, I'm here, or whatever it was. Did you ever see School Ties?
1: I, I saw bits of it like when it was on TV once. Oh, that's um, a good movie. Yeah, but anyway, I, Damon, I did not have a pleasant experience. Chris of, O'Donnell. Chris O'Donnell went to the same high school as my father.
0: Oh, your father went to school ties.
1: No, no, Chris O'Donnell, the actor.
0: Yeah, Chris O'Donnell, the actor, is from the North Shore of Chicago. Oh, I didn't know that he was in the worst Batman. Yes, he was in the worst Batman. That is true. Yeah. Okay, um, so anyhow, you went to so you went to you went to you, you didn't do senior year at Hogwarts because you your wand broke.
1: Anyway, my, my experience of American high school education was not a positive one. I found it something of a culture shock. And so I I, I do not have warm, fuzzy feelings either of it or consequently its sort of sepia-tinted 90s uh, version of
0: Saved by the Bell. What about Stacy Carosi, though? Uh, I'm drawing a blank on that one. Oh, man. So there was a summer when the whole Saved by the Bell crew worked at something called the Palisades Beach Club. And, uh, you know, it was just a way to get them out of the school. And it was the summertime. And, uh, and it introduced a new character, the boss's daughter, named Stacey Croso, played by the great um, Leah Rimini. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, once and formerly a Scientologist. Uh, I, I don't think she's, yeah, she's out of it. Once and formerly a Scientologist. And anyway, Leah Rimini was the love interest for Zach Morrison, also for young J.D. Flynn. And so, um, uh-huh. uh, yeah. And, uh, and Zach, I, I can't remember the exact details, but Zach. Won a beach volleyball game and by virtue of winning the beach volleyball game um stacy carosi's dad a, Port- a portly fellow gave him a car he-, he throws the keys up in the air. He goes, remember zach this one's for the car and then zach spikes the ball or something like that and then he tosses the keys to him and the episode ends and i had, uh, you know every I-, I think every red-blooded american male of my vintage um had a thing for uh, for miss stacy carosi but you were you know obviously you were talking I, about was of, of but, I was unaware i was unaware of this mm-hmm. yeah okay well trapper keepers I don't. Could you? Could I have more information, please? No. M- moving on. Uh, charter schools. Uh, yes. Okay. Playground teacher totters. Oh yes. Okay. Uh, homecoming dances. Uh, no. <laughs> you do not. You don't like the. You don't like the homecoming dance, huh? You don't. You don't like the homecoming dance.
1: Well, again, bear in mind the majority of my education was single sex. So those. I, don't get me wrong. I like the guys, but I. I don't <laughs> need to do the jitterbug with them.
0: <laughs> I don't know what that means. Uh, Sadie Hawkins dances. Again, more information, please. A Sadie Hawkins dance is a dance... I don't know if they're still... They might have gone out of vogue because it's probably not no longer um, appropriate. But traditionally, a Sadie Hawkins dance is a dance. I don't know who Sadie Hawkins is, and neither do you. But a Sadie Hawkins dance traditionally is a dance at which... Women ask men to the dance rather than the sort of customary thing. Oh, it's a sort of me. leap year proposal type thing. Well, I don't know what that is, but sure.
1: Well, the the custom is that on a leap year day, women propose to men marriage as opposed to... Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's a, it's a leap year thing.
0: Yeah. Uh-huh. You, okay. Do you like Pirates of Penzance, by the way?
1: Uh, no, I'm not a Gilbert and Sullivan fan particularly. Okay. okay. I just, you know, the guy has his birthday on leap year. Uh, I, uh, anyway. Uh, so, uh, dances at which girls invite guys. Yeah, sure. Power to the Sisterhood,
0: man. Go for it. Okay. Uh, Yearbooks. Uh, No. Do you know what a yearbook is? Yes, I know what a yearbook is. I had one. Um, What was your, did you have a saying, a quote? Uh, uh, I had many. Um, But you didn't have to have like, some schools have to have like a senior quote where you give a quote and they put it below your.
1: Yeah. I I forget what mine was. Um, I think it was Lewis Carroll. Um, Something about being through the looking glass. You must be mad. How do you know? Because we're all mad here or something i I don't know everything about the high school is bad and stupid it is people at their most um it's just a bad time in life like it's not a it's not a good period for anyone
0: yeah i didn't Um, have a good
1: everyone is you know people who think they're smart aren't aren't anywhere near as smart as i think they are people who think they're funny are actually not funny at all like the only anyone who's who's going to be a great person in later life is probably not having a great time in high school and anyone who's having a great time in high school and for whom high school is genuinely sincere and positive and excellent life experience it's like well then they're the kind of people who peaked in high school so you know oh, yeah okay. i did, yeah enough. yearbooks no thanks there's nothing in my year i mean yeah, i don't I, have I've my never
0: yearbook. had an i don't know where it is i've never had an interest certainly in looking at it or i, I think i got it because you're sort of required to get I, I i agree generally speaking with your assessment of high school although i like two things um, debate, team, Well, three things. Debate team, student newspaper, and I had a great car. Did you have a car? I had a great car in high school. I did I not a, have a car. For first of all, the, the driving instructor was Supreme. 18. Yeah. Well, sucks for you. I had a great car. But I didn't have a school parking spot. You know, there was a lottery for a school parking spot. I didn't have that had to park uh, uh, just like kind of in the neighborhood around the school and then hoof it in. It's neither here nor there. School newspaper uh, was fun. I enjoyed that. I will grant that much. Beer pong. No. Agreed. I have never played beer pong, but um, moving on to what J.D. drank in high school, Southern Comfort. No. See, I associate that with school because of my own problem. Uh,
1: <laughs> I started going to pubs at the age of 16, and that was, you know, yeah. fine. So I, you know, the the, the the high school drinking culture of your average English public school is a fair distance from the American experience, I think. Oh, I can imagine. Because there's just a, a wider cultural acceptance of drinking. It's not to say that it doesn't go wrong and, you know. Excessive drinking in your teenage years is
0: bad for your health, and all that stuff. You shouldn't do it. And you know, yeah. wasn't it true that in the last book, Draco was going to meetings?
1: I don't. More information, please. Um, esports. Uh, this is the this is this is when people have like varsity teams for video games.
0: Yes. I. Sure. I. Okay. I, I don't. I don't get it. But you know what? Go for it. Why not? I. I didn't know that. I didn't expect that, but I, I, I'm fascinated to hear it. All right, sir. Um, class rings. No. Yeah, totally. Yeah. God. And and in high school, you know, I didn't get a class ring in high school because I thought it was a waste of money and I didn't have any money. And also, I didn't have a particular yen to remember high school or my the people in my class. And at the same time, on class ring day, when everyone else got their class rings, you know, there was sort of this half day of like, oh, maybe I should have bought one. And then I realized like, those are those were like hundreds of dollars for something that I had you know I mean just hundreds of anyone, dollars yeah. to mark right, an occasion anyway? where you fulfilled a legal requirement right exactly bingo but you wear I mean don't, am I correct that in a, you wear some ring beyond your wedding ring uh, I don't look at your hands that often but don't you wear some kind of uh, okay I thought I thought you wore some sort of a signet ring for I have one that I, I do wear on
1: occasion although that is uh, that is something I was given through my family oh well that's a different story. Friday night lights we've been here before no
0: I will never understand that. No, well, understand.
1: hang on. Let's redefine terms. Are, when you say Friday Night Lights, are we talking the book, the film, or the television show? The because television I may show, have The other things answers. don't matter.
0: The other things don't matter. The, Just the, the television, television show. show. Yeah. No. Hard Just
1: no. A fool. No. No. We've been down here with No. we the ridiculous, hyped up soap opera nonsense of you know emo matt damon turning into a shovel slayer <laughs> and you know I, I mean that and i we're not I,
0: no yeah but didn't yeah but didn't you feel glad yeah no sorry you're wrong about that final uh final back to school yes or no you've done pretty well here but your final back to school yes or no and i have a feeling now you're gonna probably say that you don't know that this wasn't a part of your school experience and that i i'm concerned that you're gonna say that you don't know what this is even though this is offend, effectively the the fundament of school nutrition everywhere tater tots Oh, I know what tater tots are. Yeah, sure. Oh, good. Okay. I good. mean, they well, weren't part of my school experience, but still, yes. Okay, good. Well, Ed, you have done very well. You uh, are clearly ready to head back to school. Well done. And I'll look forward to a more, uh, a more educational conversation with you next week. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, May I, before we leave, one thing? Oh, I have one thing, too.
1: Oh, okay. Well, I'll say okay. one thing, and then I'll you can first. say hear one thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <Are> you <laughs> No, you you go second because you're going to do the outro and all that stuff. Um, No, all I wanted to say was. Yeah, uh, I just wanted to. Okay, go for it. You do. No, no, please. I'm just messing with the end. I know you are. Um, No, what I wanted to say was uh, first of all, as always, a thank you to everyone who listens to the podcast and is a subscriber to the pillar. You are. Much loved and appreciated and I really do sincerely mean that and as not long just as because of the
0: goddy, sorry.
1: Oh my god. And not just because of the minor league baseball hats, but in general, sincerely thank you. Um and also just a plea to the people who do listen to this podcast, because you are obviously a person of of taste and discernment, to consider subscribing. Um I know there are a lot of you out there, and and I would just ask, please, you know, we're we uh we really enjoy what we do. We really enjoy making this podcast. We really enjoy the, the journalism we get to do with the pillar and we would like to see the pillar grow and become more firmly established. And the way we're gonna do that is if people subscribe. So I would just ask you, please, if you are listening
0: to this, to consider subscribing. That's I was all. thinking I, I I was thinking the other day, like um the, the people who listen to the show, I feel like, are are our sort of closest, you know, collaborators with, uh, you know, in terms of the Pillar Project and the people to whom we have, I think, the best relationship. And, and you know, yeah. there are a lot of people who consistently listen to the show. And if everybody who consistently listened to the show was a subscriber, the Pillar would be, we would be able to expand our offerings dramatically. I mean, the Pillar would be huge and we'd be able to you know bring in more journalists and cover more areas. We have a ton of, we just have a ton of ideas that are unrealized for lack of personnel effectively and um, uh, in terms of serious reporting on the life of the church. And um, if our podcast subscribers were the ones who uh, helped us get there by going to pillarcatholic.com slash subscribe or going to pillarcatholic.com and hitting subscribe. And if they were the ones to help us just really grow this project into something which can, tr- can contribute even all the more meaningfully into the life of the church, it would be awesome. It would be huge. Yeah. Please. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host, JD Flynn, and I have been joined for this great conversation by Ed uh, Tater Tot, Saved by the Bell, Go Bayside Tigers, uh, Condon. And uh, we will have more Saved by the Bell adventures for you next week. Ed? Yeah. Say goodbye. Eh? See you guys. Okay. (laughs)